Okay, so our first reading comes from Acts, uh, chapter 16, verses 1 to 5. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was Greek. As they travelled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in faith and grew daily in numbers. The second reading comes from 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve, as my ancestors did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you, so that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives also in you. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit of God gave us, does not make us timid, but gives us power, love and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it is now being revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Thank you, Mandy. Helpful if you have that passage in front of you, just to organise my life up here. Now, uh, obviously, I've uh, chosen the sermon series title with something in mind, Uh, but it's probably not what you think. Uh, Famous last words. Have you ever Googled the term? Has anyone ever Googled famous last words? It's kind of a bit of fun because you actually find that out there there's there's a whole lot of uh, people who've said some quite amazing things on their on their deathbed. So here's uh, here's Oscar Wilde. Some of these famous last words are quite funny. Uh, the satirist, the playwright, 
his famous last words, the wallpaper and I are fighting a duel to the death. Either it goes or I do. I think the wallpaper won. Uh, Some of them are quite uh, weird. Some of them are quite sad. The one I liked the best was uh, this guy. He is uh, the uh, Major General John Sedgwick on the Union Army uh, at the uh, the Battle of Spotsylvania. I'm sure you know that one. Okay, it was in the American Civil War. And uh, he was reprimanding his men for ducking in fear as the snipers were firing. His famous last words, they couldn't hit an elephant at that distance. (laughs) Attested historically by a man who held him as he actually died. Uh, So yes, interesting, isn't it? Question, what would you say if you knew that this moment was going to be your last words to these people, to this person, what would you want to say? I think you'd cut to the chase, wouldn't you? You'd actually say what was really important, what really concerns you the most. And the real meaning behind the sermon series title, Famous Last Words, has everything not to do with me, but to do with Paul. Because this is the last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. He wrote it as he was sitting in jail uh, to his offsider, to his protege, to a man called Timothy who he describes in verse 2 of chapter 1 of 2 Timothy as my dear son. Literally the translation is my beloved child. Paul tells us in verse 5 that he's a prisoner and he's suffering. In chapter 2, verse 9, he speaks of his chains. Chapter 4, verse 16, he speaks of the legal hearings he is having uh, before the emperor. And he is expecting in chapter 4, verses 6 to 8, that this will be the end of the line for him. And if church history is right, he was beheaded uh, at Nero's direction in 64 AD in the persecutions that came from uh, or came out of the great fire in Rome. These are Paul's last words to Timothy. These are the things that he really wants Timothy to remember. So I thought, as I thought about what was going to be perhaps my last six sermons here at this church, what better words to use? to use the words that the Holy Spirit has inspired Paul to write to Timothy and put there in our our Bibles for us to focus on what is truly, really important. So we've got uh, six sermons as we work through the book of 2 Timothy. And today we are talking about no shame. I've got three points for you. Shame, solid foundations and a well-founded life. My brain couldn't get that into three sort of three points starting with X or something like that, as I normally like to do. Uh, so you'll have to forgive me. Shame, solid foundations, and a well-founded life. Now, Jane introduced us to the topic of shame, didn't she? Uh, so uh, I want to ask you, what, what, what makes you ashamed? What makes you ashamed? And not so much about 
something about yourself. But when you think about others, Jane introduced the whole idea of football teams and perhaps, uh, you know, why would you associate yourself with a team, you know, I've, I've been a bit nicer, I could have picked on the Port fans, but, you know, really, to associate yourself with such a despised group, a group held in such low regard as the Collingwood Football Club, like... Would you walk down the street wearing their colours? Could you, could you even front up for that? I asked Matt, I'm going to blame him actually, who should I use? Matt told me I should use that. So if you, any, any, okay, got that? Okay. Why do you feel shame to associate yourself with a particular group? You see, Christians have felt that pressure. Paul writes to Timothy that he might not feel shame. So why, should, why would he feel shame? Why would he be embarrassed or maybe even fearful? Why would we be embarrassed or maybe even fearful? Well, it's the same then as it was now. To be a Christian in that time was to be exposed to ridicule and perhaps even danger. Because Christianity was seen as something that was weak. A crucified Messiah. Where's the power in that? It was seen as something that was stupid. It was mocked. It was ridiculed. One of the first uh, portrayals in art of the crucifixion was this, scrawled in plaster on a wall. Uh, and if you can't decipher the, 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 the Latin there, it's Alexamos worships his God. And there you have a donkey-headed Jesus on the cross. Christians were mocked and ridiculed. And not only that, Not only was Christianity seen as weak, not only was it seen as stupid, it was seen as evil. People had spied on Christian meetings and seen uh, a small loaf or a small thing up the front of the Lord's Supper under a cloth and Christians talking about eating flesh and drinking blood and they assumed that Christians were eating children because that was the only thing that was small enough to fit under that cloth. They were cannibals. The Roman historian speaks of them, Tacitus, he writes and he talks about Jesus. He says, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition. He's talking about Christianity. It uh, thus checked for the moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil... But even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their centre and become popular. Back in Paul's time, this was the view of Christianity. Christians were not seen as the good guys. They were not held in esteem. They were seen as weak, as stupid and as evil. There was a time in the empire where the decline of Uh, the decline of Roman power was attributed to the rise of Christianity because they viewed that the Roman gods were not being worshipped with the adoration they deserved. 
And these wretched Christians were undermining state security. It is weak. It is stupid. It is evil. But as it was then, so it is now. Why might we be ashamed? You've probably heard it. Christianity's a crutch. It's only for weak people who just can't face reality. It's fanciful stories. It's wish fulfillment. Yes, I believe in fairies in the bottom of the garden and unicorns too. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, okay. It's for weak people. It's for stupid people. Look, science has disproved Christianity as if it has any intellectual credibility at all. You'd have to be dumb. Christianity weak. Christianity stupid. Christianity evil. We're hearing that more and more, aren't we? Take the Christian stance on sexual ethics. We're not just seen as repressed or conservative or just a bit weird, but actually insisting that God made sex for expression within heterosexual marriage. That's not just weird, that's bad. That's evil. And so we find ourselves like Timothy and the Christians in the early church on the back foot. Are we ashamed to name the name of Christ? Will we declare ourselves to be Christians? Or do we kind of step back? Do your neighbours know? Do your workmates know? Do your uni friends or school friends? Do they know that you name the name of Christ? Or do we step back? Are we ashamed? Paul tells Timothy that he has no reason. He tells us that we have no reason for shame. So what foundation can we have for confidence? Let's move to our second point. Paul tells us this. Can I just say there is so much in this little passage, 12 verses. I think I could have preached about all six sermons based on these 12, sermons, uh, these 12 verses. I'm not going to do that. I want to pull out for us the confidence that Paul has. Why is it that he can say just a little bit further down uh, in... Um, In verse 8, he says, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. And then in verse 12, he says, that is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame. What is the foundation that Paul has? Now, can I say it is two things or two things that he draws out here. It is who God is and what God has done. So let me unpack this just briefly. Who God is. We worship one God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. We worship one God in Trinity and that God in Scripture is revealed to us as a God who is extraordinarily generous. He is a God who gives So in verse 2, we have a God who gives us grace, mercy, and peace. But more than that, 
we have a God who gives us himself. So we have in verse 1, the son in whom is the promise of life. This is the son who was born in a shed and who died on a cross. This is the son, the Lord Jesus, who lived among us and died for us. God has given us himself. And in verse 7, he not only has given us the son, he has given us the spirit. The spirit, not that gives us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love and self-control. We have a God who is generous who pours out good things upon his people and gives of himself. So what confidence can Paul has? He knows that God gives good things to his people. And so he is confident. He is confident and not ashamed. And how does Paul know this? Well, it's there. It's there in verse 10. He talks about the gospel. And he talks about how God has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He talks about the grace in verse 9 that was given to us in Christ before the beginning of time, but has now been revealed. He's speaking of the gospel. Now, not long ago, I was pulled up by, uh, by someone because gospel is a bit of a jargon word for Christians, isn't it? They're kind of like, Cameron, you talk about the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is literally the good news. Now, I want to just run you through something that I find just a really helpful way. There's lots of ways of actually unpacking the gospel, of explaining that good news. I want to give you three points, and they all start with C. And C's my first name too. So you can remember, this is Cameron telling me how to explain the gospel. Okay, point one, cradle. God sent Christ into the world. He was born as a man. He lived amongst us. He showed us God. The cradle, the incarnation, if you want to use the technical term. But cradle's easy. Okay, you got that? Okay. Next C, the cross. That Christ, that Jesus, born in a shed, lived amongst us, showing us God. He went to the cross in our place. He bore our sin. He died in taking the penalty that we deserved. Incarnation, cradle, cross, the atonement. Okay, but cradle, cross. Anyone want to guess if they can get the last C? Ah, thank you, Margaret. Okay, thank you. Cradle, cross, crown. Because that Jesus, the Jesus born in the shed, who died on the cross, he did not stay dead. He rose again to life and ascended to reign with God. And he is going to come back and he is going to set all things right. And he is going to bring God's perfect creation. Cradle, cross, crown. Really simple way of actually just remembering the key message, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Okay? Incarnation, atonement, resurrection and reign, if you like the bigger terms. But cradle, cross, crown. 
And here Paul says, this God, this generous God, this God who gives not only good gifts to his people, but gives himself through the gospel has given us an incredible foundation. Verse 9, he has saved us and he has called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but has now been revealed through the appearing of our saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to life to light through the gospel. It's an incredible verse, isn't it? It's talking about how God, he chose to give us grace before creation. It shows the scope of his plan goes from the beginning before creation to the end. This is a huge God who spans all of history. And he chose to give each of us who are his, his grace before creation. And he brought that to life when he sent Christ. And through Christ, his birth, death, resurrection, he saved us. And in case we didn't get what that means, he tells us he has destroyed death. Destroyed death, death the penalty that we justly deserved for our rebellion against God. He's destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. He's opened the gate of eternity to us through the cross, through bearing our sin, through dying in our place. That's why Paul is confident. That's why Paul has no shame because of who God is and what he has done. He has this confidence. Look at verse 12 if you've got it. I haven't got it on the screen, unfortunately. I should have put it up. He says, I know whom I have believed. I know in whom my faith rests. I know he is a good God. I know he is a God who spans eternity. I know that he holds all of history in his hands. But he has chosen Paul and each of us who are his to receive grace. He spans history, but he knows us personally. And Paul says, as he sits in prison in chains awaiting execution, I'm not ashamed. I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What's Paul talking about? He's entrusted his very life. When we come to Christ, when we come and put our trust in God through the gospel, we give over our life to God. And we are in Christ. And Paul is saying, I am secure. 
It doesn't matter what the headsman does. It doesn't matter what Nero Emperor does. It doesn't matter what our society says. There is nothing that can take us from God's hand. And Paul reflects that at the most dire situation. So what does it mean? What does a well-founded life, a life that is not ashamed, a life that is built upon the goodness and grace and mercy of God, what does a well-founded life look like? Well, here's verse 12. I should have looked further down in my notes, shouldn't I? He's convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? Do you notice the language? Paul's handed himself over. It's not up to him anymore, is it? If someone is going to take Paul, they're going to have to take on God. Paul's not going to have to hold the fort. God's got this covered. He says earlier in verse 9, some verses that are worth committing to memory. We are saved. We are gods. We are secure. Not because of anything we have done. Now, this is one of the core aspects of the Christian faith. If you are a Christian... If you are one of God's people, if you are saved, it is not because of anything you have done. It's not because of any good deeds. It's not because of your nationality, your gender, your age, your IQ, your job, anything that our world esteems, anything that our world looks to for security means nothing. It is not because of of anything we have done. What is it? It's because of God's purpose and his grace. And that gives incredible security. Because God has chosen to set his love upon us. He has chosen to save us. And he has done everything that is necessary. It's not kind of like, I'd like to pick you for the team. So if you can achieve what is necessary to be part of the team, I'd love to have you on. No. He said, I want to pick you for the team and I have done everything you need to be part of this. Because he did that in Christ. As Christ took our penalty and as his perfect record comes to us by faith. He has done that. And so why can Paul have confidence? Because it is secure. It is done. It is in God's hands. So let me expand a little bit. Why can Trinity Church Brighton have confidence going forward? Is God any different today than he was then has the gospel changed does god still give good gifts to his people is the spirit that lives amongst us that god has given us a spirit of fear no it's a spirit of 
power of love and of self-control. He is our heavenly father. We are in his hands and there is no one who can take us out of them. His love, his power, his grace shown ultimately in the gospel should give us the most incredible confidence going forward. Does it mean, oh, look, it'll all be easy? No, I'm not saying that. Paul doesn't get a free ride, does he? He's sitting in jail. He's waiting for execution. But that does not shake his faith. Christianity is not, you know, Pollyanna, you know, roses and unicorns. It's real. It's gritty. But Jesus has conquered death and brought life and immortality to light through his death and resurrection. And so we can have confidence. We need not be ashamed. So brothers and sisters, I encourage you, hold on to who God is and what he has done. He has not changed. And he is a God who gives good gifts. We can have confidence in a, well, a well-founded life. We also have service. Paul speaks and he says this, he speaks of himself. He says in verse 11, this gospel... He was appointed a herald, an apostle, and a teacher of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ. He is appointed a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. I love the fact that um, once again here at Brighton, we are doing our Christmas mission. I love what uh, Matt and Jane are Doing. I particularly enjoyed the um, the bad lip sync. You know that was that was wonderful, wasn't it? It was like a foreign film, kind of hearing a voice and you're seeing the lips doing completely different things. But you know the, the message was there. It was good. It was good. It's a wonderful opportunity we have to reach out into our community, not just with the gifts of some yummy chocolates or some cool craft things or some beautiful plants. Not just the well-wishing of a card, but with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why our growth groups are spending time now looking at our series and reading the book on how to talk about Jesus. It's funny, um, and I, you know, as, as a preacher, sometimes I look back on what I've said and I'm going, oh, I kind of wish I never said that. One thing I said, not to this congregation, uh, a number of years ago, I quoted a, a quote that is attributed to Francis of Assisi. Uh, it's actually not his. There's no evidence he ever said it. Uh, and, and you may have heard this, and it's quite popular around Christian circles. Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. And you go, okay, you know, it kind of sounds a bit nice, yes. Except for, can I just say, it's always necessary to use words. 
uh, it is always necessary to use words. Paul doesn't go out and say, uh, because of the gospel, I became a good person who did nice things to people. Paul did lots of nice things for people. But he also spoke the words of eternal life. If the gospel is not announced, people cannot respond. They might see your deeds, but as Peter says, that we must always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. And Christmas is a wonderful time for us to do that. Why why are you giving me this? Well, God gave us his son. And we want to show just a fraction of the love that he has for you by showing that in giving you a gift. Matt and I have dug up some books, some little books called A Very Different Christmas. I think they've got the same title, don't they? Yeah, Matt's giving me the thumbs up. And they are a simple little explanation. So if you have a conversation that someone shows some interest around that gift, you can then follow them with the gift of the little book. And you can give it to them. It's not as confronting as a conversation, but a conversation's also great. But Paul here, he gives himself in service as an ambassador, as a herald, as an apostle, as a teacher. And he tells Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony. Brothers and sisters, do we realize that we have the words of eternal life? That we are here today because someone told us. And God, in his eternal purposes, chose to give us new birth through the word of life. God could use you this Christmas to add, as we read in Acts, to the numbers of God's people. As his spirit does work through the words that he chooses for you to speak. A life well-founded is a life of confidence, a life of service. But brothers and sisters, it also is a life of suffering. Paul tells Timothy just a few chapters later in this letter. He says, whoever desires to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. He doesn't say might. He says will. And for Paul, that meant sitting in a prison awaiting execution. It's probably not going to mean that for us. But for Christians around the world, it does mean that. But you know what? We have a God who has destroyed death. What is the worst that can happen to us? One of the hymns I love talks about about this and it says, All death does is shortens the journey and hastens us home. Brothers and sisters, we have a God who gives good things, who has conquered death, destroyed it, and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. It may be a life that is hard. It may be a life that entails suffering. Jesus himself said to his disciples, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. But God delighted to raise his son from the dead and in him we are secure. So brothers and sisters, do not be ashamed. 
We know whom we have believed and he is able to guard what we have entrusted to him until that day. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would teach us of your goodness, of your grace, of your power. Father, we pray that you would keep us firmly founded in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. That we would have no shame, that we would not be afraid, because the spirit you have poured into our hearts is the spirit of power, of love and of self-control. And Father, we do pray that you would bless us by teaching us more of yourself. And we pray this in Christ's most precious name. Amen.